You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. You're listening to the Show Jumping Podcast, a fun and informative show for riders, owners, trainers, grooms, and fans of all levels. I'm Ashley Winch in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm Christy McCormick in Saratoga Springs, New York. And you're listening to the Show Jumping Podcast, where we deliver at-home riding exercises to our listeners and chat with fellow horse enthusiasts about the world of show jumping. Coming up on today's show, we're interviewing Amy Momro from Stepping Stone Farm out of Albany, New York, about balance in the horse industry, sharing an exercise to help you better understand tracking, and we're taking a look back at horse history and about keeping our equine pals warm. After a quick word from our title sponsor. If you're a horse owner, you know horses are prone to ulcers. The issue is finding an over-the-counter supplement that works and is safe. That's where our sponsor, Reline GI by Haggard, comes in. Reline GI is a polysaccharide blend of high-weight hyaluronic acid, a natural substance found in the body that acts as a lubricant and an immune-boosting beta-glucan. Plus, it's backed by a study conducted by renowned vets at Haggard. In the study, adult horses with gastric ulceration were administered a polysaccharide gel containing a blend of hyaluronin and schizophilin for 30 days. 90% of the horses showed complete resolution or improvement in ulcerative areas, increased appetite, weight gain, and positive behavioral changes. Now that's results. Brought to you by our sponsor, Reline GI by Haggard. To read the study conducted by Dr. Slovis and learn more about Reline GI, visit www.resolvet.com. And remember to use code SJP, Show Jumping Podcast, at checkout for 10% off. Amy is the professional rider and trainer at Stepping Stone Farm out of Albany, and she spends her winters in Florida and her summers in upstate New York. Her and I have been friends and riding colleagues for a long time. Thanks for being on the show, Amy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to talk to you about um, the topic of balance today, and I was hoping we could get into balance, not just for um, the horses um, and the business, but also as riding professionals and what that means to us. Um, as far as the horses go, there are so many horse shows and so many classes to do at these shows. And I know that we as professionals really have to pick and choose what's best for our horses and our customers, which sometimes can conflict. Um, on the flip side, not every rider is going to spend their winters in Wellington and they need to have some sense of progress when we don't have horse shows to look forward to for months at a time. So. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach in your business and how you help your clients meet their goals without overshowing or overtraining, and also how you keep your horses that might just compete in the summertime on a sense of a program and with having some sense of progress. Sure. So we have a very unique business um, at Stepping Stone as we have a northern business and you know, the winters in Wellington and we keep both going and we have students from 
learning to walk trot all the way through, you know, the international Grand Prix level. So what we try to do is we try to really bring it back to goals of each rider. And they can be as simple as like some of our riders that are staying in New York for the winter. Um, we do like monthly goals and because they're not going to be showing till the springtime. And to keep them and the horses, you know, fit and ready for when the show season does come. But some of those riders even, it could be something as simple as each month, like I'm going to learn to post and not look for my diagonal. And so that by the time I go to maybe this rider might only show once in the summertime and that's their goal. And um, so we try to keep people motivated as well as the horses with simple tasks and um, through the winter time, because, you know, it can be a little hard with the weather and that. So we try to make it a little bit more uh, like monthly versus such a long forward goal ahead of them. Um, Because like I said, the weather can really play a part on consistency there. Um, And then for, we have, then we have the next level of riders that are showing a lot, like you talked about, and that be, that's where it becomes a little bit more complicated, <clears throat> excuse me, with balance for the horse and rider. And again, we get where we try to individually work with each rider and horse and have their goals and a little bit work backwards from those goals. So a good instance in um, is you know, a junior equitation rider that we have, she's going into her last year. And um, that is, I think in our sport, one of the hardest divisions to balance um, as far as, like you said, with the horse burnout or the rider burnout even. Um, Mm -hmm. So we try to like, one of her main goals is um, obviously Devin And then in the summer, she has the Gladstone Cup and then indoors for next year, which we are just coming off of indoors. But um, we really work backwards from those goals and try to put a balance for the horse and rider so that they can have, you know, weeks where we really train hard and then they can have some um, moments of areas where it's not downtime, but a little bit of a downtime to like refresh their bodies, refresh their minds so that they're peaking at the right moments. Um, and it's, sure. it seems to work well if we can really, you know, obviously there's outside unforeseen situations that happen sometimes, but for the most part, we try to, uh, work backwards from those goals to te- keep everybody on track and to keep everybody and including the horse fresh and ready for the competition for when it comes. And how do you handle new clients to the business where, they're not so familiar as to what sort of boundaries we have to place on the horses' schedules. Um, I know that it's so great to have a new client that's very eager to have their child or even themselves, you know, jump right in with two feet. But sometimes we have to really work on how to space out the competition for the horses, and it's easy to forget that that has to come first. How do you how do you handle that with your customers? So we actually are um, have, we come across this a lot and. Um, we really try to, however, however that customer relates in their life to other things, we try to relate the horse to that a little bit, such as, um, one of our customers that is doing this and they're coming down to Wellington for their first winter. 
And um, they're like, well, we can come every weekend. And we said, well, that's great, but your horse can't compete every weekend. And at first they didn't really understand. And then, but they have a son that plays hockey. And we're like, you know, how you, you know, how he comes off the ice so tired, like he couldn't even think about doing a a game the next day. Or you try to make it very relatable to them Mm -hmm. so that they understand that these horses are, they're true athletes. And that we have to really, they don't have a voice for themselves. So we really have to be their voices. And we, and I try to um, relate it to something that they can understand in their life as well, you know, rather than just being like, nope, sorry, that doesn't work. You know, I try right. to make it very relatable to them so they understand to allow the horse to have their the moments where they can compete, but then also have recovery and training, you know, because we have to, we sometimes skip that. It's not always just competition. We have to allow for that to happen to keep the horse ready for the rider. Yes. And the not always showing element is always tough. Um, I, especially with all of these classes and finals to qualify for. And I love that horse shows have expanded the accessibility for, um, you know, lower levels of competition that some riders who might not qualify for the medal finals come, you know, they might not be able to, if that's the only goal to get to, they might not achieve that, but there's so many three, three levels to go to and other classes. Uh, how do you decide when you're planning out a horse's schedule? Um, what is the best, uh, you know, amount of showing to do how many classes a week could they do, you know, for the, new person coming into this, what can they expect to see for a successful program that promotes longevity for the horse and the rider? Yeah. And like you said, there are so many options nowadays that, like I said, we try to really, um, when we bring the rider to the sport, like especially a new rider, um, we try to see what their comfort level is, what their, um, cause they don't always also know what a goal might be at that point. Cause they don't know all the different options that there are now. So we try to help them with that. And, you know, we tend to be a little conservative, I would say compared to some places or, or some other, um, show barns. And so we try to really channel it down to, um, you know, like one or two big, uh, finals, I want to say finals, but some are just like derbies even, or whatever, whatever division the rider might be. And we try to really just narrow it down to like one or two of the big goals at the end of season versus having something that's so overwhelming where there's so many, you know, and, um, Mm -hmm. we try to really just, you know, we try to, we have to be reasonable, you know, like I said, these horses are athletes and it's our job to, to speak for them and to care for them and, um, all that. So we try to really channel it into smaller, I don't know if smaller is the right word. We try to channel it, channel the, um, options, I guess you'd say. Sure. So that it's not, there's not so, it's not so broad or so many, because really, realistically, like you said, a horse could actually do like 15 finals or 15, you know, there are so, so many now. Yeah. And I think yeah. we used to, I mean, 50 years ago, they had the medal McClay finals and it's, right. Exactly. And they had um, maybe three indoors for hunters to qualify for. And right now it's just seems infinite and right. It's just easy to get overwhelmed in trying to do everything. And I think that's a real key to what we do is trying to 
channel, and that was a good word used to channel your goals to figure out what's best for use or a rider or even a horse specifically versus trying to get everything done. Exactly. And honestly, and sometimes it comes down to a financial decision and that's fine because we work with all, um, all types of riders, all types of backgrounds, all types of finances. Like we, we show from local shows to county fairs to, um, you know, the international level shows. And there's something to be learned at all of these levels. And there's, um, you know, you know, finals and, um, things for each level. So that, that sometimes becomes, um, a deciding factor as well, which is fine. And it's so hard to ignore the fact that this is such a financially driven sport that it's expensive as it is. And the more you can afford, you know, really the more you can do. And so I, I think it's can be tough for some riders to watch others that because one horse can't do everything, if you can afford multiple horses and you, then you can do multiple finals and you can have multiple goals on there. And, um, can you talk just for a minute about how to make it still just as important for each rider, whether they have one horse or 10 horses, you know, what they're working towards and how, how to still keep that fun and motivating uh, without getting distracted by the other, you know, com- competitors who might have several horses to compete on? Yeah, of course. And we actually deal with this quite a bit in our business because, like I said, we do cater to all levels. And you know, what we try to do is make it for whatever level you are at, or um, like some of the riders that just show locally or the county fairs or whatever, we try to put place just as much importance on that and fun to that as the riders that are getting to go and do, you know, the A shows or whatever. And we also try to incorporate the riders that maybe can't financially afford that, but there's no reason they can't come and be a part of the team at those shows Mm -hmm. and learn from it and walk the courses with me and the other riders and, you know, still be a part of the team. So there's still, there's still full involvement and, you know, you know, their, their big show at, you know, the tri-county verse being in Wellington is just as important to that rider and that horse at that time. And we try to deliver that um, to them so that they understand that, you know, all parts of this and you don't have to ride in the international level to have an importance in the sport and to have fun and to have goals and to really feel a part of a team. And that's a whole nother topic is what you can learn from the ground too. I mean, you and I have grown up taking care of our own horses, you know, since we were little. And I think that's gotten a bit missed because there's so much to show in now um, even for the kids that do only have one horse, it's, I think it's, it's easy to, because our barns are so busy and we have so much to do. And even if you're trying to help different levels, it's, it's time consuming to teach horsemanship from the ground, any sort of, you know, just getting to know your horse from a groom's perspective. Um, I mean, there's so many elements that, that can add to riding and add to you as a horse person that we miss, I think sometimes, and don't, don't really address that. That's part of showing too. I agree. And that's where, again, we're, we're a little bit of a different farm. We're a very family atmosphere. And um, so we encourage our riders, especially our young riders to come help pack to the shows, to come help set up at the shows, to come um, on Saturday and Sundays and, 
watch the grooms and help the grooms and, you know, do all these things. Cause like you said, that was a big part of our growing up and we try to still incorporate it when we can. And of course, when we're competing, we do, we, you know, it's, you know, we try to make it where the riders can be fully focused on the competition. So yes, it is very nice and very luxurious that they have um, groom situations and all that. And so that we can help them really be focused on their showing, but outside of the showing, we really try to um, involve them in any ways and, you know, help load the trailer, unload the trailer. Um, you know, even as we're setting up down here in Wellington, organize, you know, simple things and what it really goes into doing these horse shows. Cause it's, you know, sometimes they get there and everything's all set up and off we go where there's so much behind the scenes. Do you see a difference in your students um, if they are participating in activities like that on the ground versus the ones that don't? I would say that we are quite fortunate that nearly, I think, just about every one of ours does. But I do. And I think that the more comfortable they get with the participation, the more... um, open they are with their mind for riding and the understanding that, you know, you can practice so hard and you can work so hard, but you're still working with an animal at the end of the day. And some days, you know, it, you know, you think you have everything going right and maybe the animal's not having the best of day and they start to understand it's not always just about winning. It's about, you know, the process of, the sport and all that. So I would say that, yes, I do think it makes a big difference when they can be a bit more involved in what is happening behind the scenes. And going back to the topic of balance, I think that uh, really shows the riders what is necessary, you know, all of the elements that it takes to get into the show ring from the ground up, not just when you're in the tack, um, it, it just proves how much we have to take care of the horses on a, uh, on a very basic level before we expect them to go in and compete themselves without, without consequence, you know, without injury, it's so easy to over jump and so easy to over, um, you know, do too many classes. And I think if a rider's aware of that and has, is the one cleaning the horse's legs and, and wrapping them and putting their hands down their tendons and knowing when there's some swelling or fill and when there's some heat and when there's not, I think that really can, there's no other way to explain how much, uh, physical work these horses go through besides taking care of them yourselves and seeing it for yourself and their bodies. I couldn't agree more. And another part that we try to be very transparent with, which I also think helps us a little in this is with our veteran, our veterinarian. She is Mm -hmm. um, very open to having the customers there. And we like this as well when we are doing, you know, any type of um, like work with the horses or anything and the kids even, or the riders being involved in that part of it, as well as like you said, their aftercare after jumping or, you know, pre-show or whatever. And it seems to really help, the riders understand that they are animals and that we do have so much that goes into it. And they don't just look at them as a tool to jump jumps that they realize that there are things, you know, that there's so many parts to keep them healthy and well, physically, never mind mentally. Sure. 
Uh, well, that's a good segue for the, as far as the mental component goes to my last question. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how we as professionals can and should stay balanced? You and I both know that when you're running a business and you're taking care of horses, that's not only a 24 hour game, but if you're low on staff or a horse gets sick in the middle of the night, you're the one that shows up at the barn. And at the same time, we are generally expected to or asked to be not just horse trainers or horse riders, but sports psychologists, emotional therapists, you know, attend sort of these power dinners after some long 16 hour days at the show. And all of those roles have value, especially when you have very close relationships uh, with our clients as we have. But it can be tough to feel like our jobs have a beginning and end to them um, each day. Um, and can I guess, can you just talk a little bit about your experience of trying to balance being a working horse professional and maybe what we could give as advice to younger people who are trying to make a living doing this, but hopefully not killing themselves in the process? For sure. And this is something I feel like I have to better myself with every day. And I, um, you know, look towards my friends. I look towards my family. I look towards older professionals for, you know, guidance. And, um, you know, I feel like for myself that a big part of it for me is to allow myself to do other outside physical activity, whether it be pickleball or kickboxing or something, a run, a walk in the park, something just because, you know, a lot of people say when they come to ride that when they're riding, that's all they're thinking about is just being on that horse and riding. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. What do I do to get my mind to do that? So mm -hmm. I try to give myself other, you know, physical activities or something that allows me to have something that shuts off besides just thinking about the horses. I think another big thing is having, um, I'm very lucky and I know Christy, you are as well as we have great family support and, mm -hmm. um, you know, to not be afraid to lean on that or, you know, great friends inside the business, outside the business. And I think another thing that I've really learned as I've gotten older is not to be afraid to set a little bit of boundaries for yourself. Um, as far as like, like you said, brought up the client dinners or, um, you know, being on the clock 24 seven to be, you know, not, I remember not even being I, like, I can't go on vacation. Or I can't do that. There's this horse show there. That's horse show. You know, as I've gotten older, I've under, I realized that, you know, you have to set boundaries and allow yourself to have those moments so that you don't allow for burnout. And that then when you are with your clients and you're with your horses, you're a hundred percent present. And you're, you know, you're there for their best uh, interest of everyone. And I've realized, like I said, it's taking me time as I've brought, grown through the business to understand that self-care is very important um, and to really do it for ourselves and surround ourselves with um, positive influences and, um, you know, uh, just really take time for ourselves and to take time for our other employees or whoever might be working alongside of us and allow them to have time and really work as a team so that we all can have a moment for ourselves. Right. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that I've learned as I've gotten older doing this is when to say no. And it's, it's impossible to please everyone all at once. And the horses have to be the ones that come first. And we sacrifice yes. so much of ourselves and our days for them, you know, and, and we're so lucky to have these, these clients that, are keeping the business rolling, but there has to be 
there has to be times of no, I, I, I physically or I mentally or I just can't do that and I don't have time for it and I'm going to be better for you, rider, client, the one I'm teaching uh, later if I, you know, say yes to myself now and and not yes to you. And and I think that's hard. We're in such a um, service, if you want to call it that, service service industry where we are trying to sometimes bend over backwards to make this such a fantastic experience, but at the expense of ourselves, that's just, you know, that's not, that's not sustainable. So I I I love that you, and I love the, the idea of, um, I wish I learned this a little earlier in my professional career. I love the idea of keeping yourself physically engaged at another activity because riding is great, but it's not it's it's it can't be the only thing your body does and if you can have another release that's so important agree agree and i and i like i said i i'm i'm working on this every day and i learn i didn't learn from other people but when you set i don't know if you want to say boundaries or when you call a moment where you need for yourself i have noticed that every client is so supportive of it and they they yes. understand and they agree of it and they appreciate that you do it once you're willing to take that step to do it but you well, as sure, the right, individual sure, have right. to be willing to take that step and to put it out there. And then they all are so welcoming to it and are so happy you're doing it for yourself. But it's like that scary moment of taking that step and putting the boundary there. Exactly. Exactly. And and showing them that you actually, you respect and care for yourself just as much as you do their horses and them. Exactly. So, 100%. It's so important. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, great. Um, this, this has been awesome. Yeah. I've, I think that this could be something we could keep talking about for days. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I think we have in the past. So, um, well, um, do you have anything else you want to add? You've been awesome on here. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And I really hope that I can give back to the sport that's given me so much. So I love being, having these opportunities. So thank you. Christy, what a wonderful interview between you and Amy. I think the overarching theme that I recognized was respect. And it's not only respect for the horse, but respect for your students, your clients, and for yourselves. And I think as we all head into the holiday season, we're all so quick to forget about ourselves. And so thank you both for sharing your experiences and and being vulnerable enough to say, like, this is something we work really hard at. It's not easy to say no. And I think there's there's power to be found in that. Um, so thanks again, Amy Mumro, for joining us for a wonderful interview. And after a quick word from our friends and title sponsors at Haggard Pharmacy, we're going to jump right in to the tracking exercise. Pun intended. Sorry, guys. Horse owners know that ulcers are a common problem for their equine companions. The challenge is finding an over-the-counter supplement that is both effective and safe. Introducing Reline GI by Haggard, a polysaccharide blend of high-weight hyaluronic acid, a natural substance found in the body that acts as a lubricant and an immune-boosting beta-glucan. Backed by a study conducted by the renowned vets at Haggard, Reline GI has been shown effective in treating gastric ulcers in horses. In the study, 90% of horses showed complete resolution or improvement in ulcerative areas, increased appetite, weight gain, and positive behavioral changes. To learn more about Reline GI and read the study conducted by Dr. Slovis, visit www.resolvet.com. Reline GI by Haggard. 
the safe and effective solution for horse ulcers. And don't forget to use code SJP, Show Jumping Podcast, at checkout for 10% off. Today's riding exercise is going to be about track, as Ashley mentioned we were jumping into. Um, last week, we talked about pace and how important it is to dictate your distance. And the second element in helping find the correct distance or any distance at all is track. And by track as riders, we all know that means where you're placing your horse in steering around the turn and where you're placing them on the way to the jump. Every horse has a tendency to pull one direction or another. And so it's really important to understand both sides of your horse laterally, as well as how to steer and go straight. And going straight seems very basic, but it can be sometimes the hardest thing to do. So in this exercise, you would like to have three poles available. And what you want to do is along one side of your ring, start with setting one pole exactly in the center, perpendicular from the rail, and then walk off the distance for five or six strides, let's say six for this exercise today, in each direction for the other two poles and set them on a 45 degree angle. So your three poles will be in a curve and you can decide how much of a curve you'd like that to be depending on the size of your ring. You want to be able to access it both from the right lead all the way through three poles and the left lead. So once you set your three poles, those can eventually become jumps, but do this on the flat to begin and try to get them so that they're exactly the same distance um, and a same distance from the two poles at each end or the same distance from the center pole, um, as well as they're in the same curve along each side. Once you have your three poles set, start by trotting or even at the walk to begin, but trot from both directions, all sorts of tracks that you could do between the three poles. So what you'll do is try to be right lead or tracking right center, center, center. So that just means you'll be looking early in your turn, coming off the rail to the first one at a little bit of an angle. You're crossing each pole exactly in the center or perpendicular to the pole. So you'll trot over the first center track to the second. So now you're along the rail and then continue trotting over the third and just get a sense of where that puts you in the ring and where your horse, even at the trot, tends to pull. Um, Do this from both directions. Notice if there is a difference. Once you've start trotting, once you've finished trotting center, center, over all three poles, change the track so that you'll be coming in from the first pole on a wider track. So you go past the center line and line up the first two poles. So what that means is you're making a more direct line between poles one and two. And if you make a more direct line between poles one and two, you will be pointed if you're tracking to the left you will be pointed slightly right over the center pole, which would put you on a wide track for the distance between poles two and three. So again, if you go wider in your first turn, you're lining up poles one and two, that puts you slightly 
to the right of pole two, and that would put you on a wider curving track from poles two to three. This sounds more complicated at the trot, but all you're doing is trying to emulate what you'll be doing at the canter later when we do set different stridings. The last track you want to do is to turn early to the first. So your track between one pole one and pole two is on a wider angle. And then you're back pointed again. If you're going left, you're pointed on the inside track or on the left side of pole two to be on one line from poles two and three. So just get a sense of doing each of those tracks at the trot from both directions. Once you've accomplished putting your horse exactly where you want them at the trot, which the reason to do it at the trot is it's slower and easier and your horse is a little bit easier to control. The next step in practicing your track is to do this at the canter. So you'll first be warming up your eye and cantering over just the middle pole by itself in a straight line. You can go around the two corner poles and just let your horse get to that working canter that we worked on last week and find the distance where it's just nicely out of that working canter or eight miles an hour. Once you like that, start to add all three poles together and use that center, center, center track that we talked about at the trot where you're just cantering exactly over the middle of each pole on a center track curving as the poles are set as if they were jumps. And that should be six strides to six strides evenly. Again, noticing if your horse is pulling in or pulling out. If they wanting, if they're wanting to pull in, use some inside leg and use some outside rein to make sure they're on that track and not making the distance shorter by cutting in. And also, if they're bulging, then you need some outside leg and both reins to bring them in so they don't make their line too long. After you've done six to six, we're going to do five to seven. So in order to do five strides to seven strides, instead of changing your speed, change your track. Stay out wider and turn a little late to the first pole, which would line up those two poles. And that would make the five easier when you line them up as opposed to putting them on the curve. That straight track is going to be your shortest distance. Again, this is about changing your track to adjust your distance as opposed to changing your pace. If you change your pace and your track, you're going to be totally off kilter. So you don't want to change both. You want to address this where you're keeping your horse in exactly that same eight mile an hour rhythm and you're asking them to turn late to the first to line it up and do five strides and then holding that curving wide line to fit seven strides into those that distance between poles two and three without having to shorten their stride. Try to accomplish that in enough, enough repetition that you feel like each pole just comes up as it would if you were doing six to six, but you're doing the steering to change the distances. The third element is flip-flopping that. You're going to do seven strides to five strides. So this time you'll turn early to pole one. You'll be on a, if you're on the left lead, you'll be a, approaching that slightly left to right and holding a wide track, wide curve in the first line to find seven strides, which should point you back to the left. So it's now right to left as you're cantering over the second pole which will put you in that nice direct line to do five again, without having to speed up or change your track or change your without having to, to change your speed. If you find yourself having to speed up or slow down in the line, adjust your track more, stay out wider in the seven, come in 
more direct in the five. All of this really has to do with how you approach the first, though. If you continue to approach the first without addressing where your line on the landing is going to go, you're never going to be able to do the correct number of strides without changing that pace. So if the seven on a wide track is short, turn even earlier. So you're giving yourself more room between poles one and two. And again, that will put you on more of a direct line. The wider you go on the first part of the line, the more direct you'll be set up for the second part. So once you've accomplished all of this, then just keep changing it. Do go back to six to six, go then back from five to seven, then switch it again, seven to five and see if you can really master where to keep your horse on track between those three poles. It sounds very simple, but it can be really challenging to make sure that each of those strides is exactly where you want them to be. Do this in both directions. Again, because horses have a tendency to pull one way or another, that usually means they have a stronger lead than than another. Sometimes they also don't want to stay on the lead that you approach in. So that's another element to add here is to make sure that how you're coming in is in such balance that you can maintain the same lead throughout all three poles, which will give you the best steering. Once you've done this on a pole level, then add jumps. And the first one to add is that center pole. Make that a jump and keep the other two corner poles on the ground so that they're simpler to come in on. Using the poles first, then hop over the jump. It does not have to be big. You can keep it at two nine, three foot maximum. Um, and then once you've added that and you're comfortable with that, make the two corner poles jumps as well. Just note that when you do make them jumps, your distance between the two elements is going to be shorter than it, they were as poles. So what you'd want to do is pull them about three to five feet out the two corner poles, make them a little bit longer than they were. So you leave room for takeoff and landing. Um, and you know, that, that track exercise can, that can take a month to master really, you know, that's, that's really something where, again, especially depending on each horse you have to work on, maybe the first day you just get six to six, both directions, just center, center, center can be the hardest one to do. And then a few days later, let's try to the left, five to seven, um, and then seven to five, and trying to figure out how to keep your horse, not just between both legs and reins, but exactly on the path that you want them to be on. Another way to do this is to make sure that when you're setting these elements, you're going to walk off the distance six to six, but then on foot, go and walk the track for seven to five, and then again, five to seven, and see if you can at least put yourself in the path that you want before putting your horse on it. And, you know, we all call it steering left to right, but it's not. There's the elements of using both legs, both reins, um, keeping your pace enough so that they don't slow down and make the lines longer or speed up, make the lines shorter. Um, this definitely relates to last week's exercise where we were on that eight mile an hour pace, working on then slowing down to seven, coming into nine. And if you can understand how to maintain pace, this will help you with maintaining the correct number of strides between uh, between the poles. And the whole goal is to change your track, not your pace in order to accomplish the distance that you want. Christy, this exercise seems deceptively 
tricky. You know, it, it seems easy enough. Okay, I'm understanding how to follow the line, but there's so much to think about. As you said, rein, leg, shoulder, lead. I, I think this is a wonderful exercise. Now, from folks who listened to our last episode and this episode, I understand they work hand in hand. Is there a preference as to which exercise maybe folks should try first, or these are totally okay to be separate exercises and use them how they fit into your training schedule? I would definitely address pace first because without the correct pace, this track isn't going to mean anything. Anybody could do this and know what kind of strides or at least accomplish the number of strides I'm dictating um, by pulling on the reins and slowing down or speeding up. And I'd really love to see people understand this exercise while staying on the pace they want in the ring. Because the whole goal of this is if this were an element in the ring, it could be accomplished with exactly the same pace that you're jumping the rest of the course with. Um, and the harder you make this exercise, the easier any variation of this will be in the ring. A lot of times we see bending lines in hunter classes, equitation classes, certainly jumper classes and, and track is everything. If you, if you are too direct, you could get to the second jump too close, um, and too early and knock it down and have a pole. If you are too wide, then you're going to have a very long distance and an uncomfortable jump. So, if you don't understand pace first, this won't make as much sense. So really, and if you don't have to master pace, you just have to have an understanding of where your ideal pace is for this exercise and then say, okay, I'm on the track I want, but I'm still getting there too soon. My horse must be going faster than I want. Okay. You're probably at nine miles an hour in, in my definition. Let's slow that down and see if you can make the correct number of strides work with a little bit less pace um, and vice versa if you're going too slow. So they do work hand in hand, but pace is the one to address first. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for this amazing exercise. I know I can't wait to get on my horse and try it. Uh, without further ado, let's hop in the way back machine and take a look at the history of horse blanketing. The history of horse blanketing is rich and varied, with its roots tracing back to ancient civilizations. Blanketing was initially used as a decorative accessory, with ornate designs showcasing the status of the horse and its owner, and also for function, as protection in battle. Over time, as horses became increasingly specialized for both sport and leisure, blanketing evolved with them into a functional tool to maintain equine health and performance. Today, horse blankets come in two main varieties, turnout and stable. Turnout blankets are designed for outdoor use, providing warmth and protection from the elements. Stable blankets, on the other hand, are intended for indoor use and offer comfort without waterproofing. Regardless of the type, proper fit is essential, ensuring your equine companion stays warm, comfortable, and free from chafing. Be sure to like, subscribe, and tell your friends all about the Show Jumping Podcast. We're available wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can find videos and photos of our exercises on our Facebook group, Overheard on the Show Jumping Podcast, linked in our show notes. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone.